This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called "I Am Barber." Hear me roar! But before we get into it. Drumroll, it's about to be Namaste Motherfucker's first anniversary. Happy first birthday to us. I would sing it, but I don't think you or your eardrums deserve that onslaught. Um, And we've got a few very exciting things in the pipeline, including brand new artwork. Wait till you see it. I love it. And as of our next Namaste Motherfucking episode, we are changing the release date to Thursdays instead of Mondays. But in case you're getting withdrawal symptoms this coming Monday, we will have a little bonus episode for you by way of a celebration of our first year on the podcast Airwaves. And after that, it's Thursday, every Thursday. And hey, if you'd love your Monday routine of listening to it, then what can I say? Just download it on a Thursday and you can still save it and listen to it on a Monday. Little patronising life hack for you. And if you haven't already, please do remember to rate, review and recommend the show and give us a follow wherever you get your stuff. That way you'll never miss a show. But back to today and the theme is hair. The Danish for mullet is Bundesligahar. Sorry about the pronunciation, Danish listeners, which means the hair of a German football player. That's excellent, isn't it? Anticipation of sex apparently increases your facial hair growth, which is the last thing a menopausal woman needs to hear. In the late 19th century, men with facial hair commonly drank tea out of moustache cups. These were designed to keep their moustaches dry and they had a little sort of emblazoned china shelf and those cups are now to be found everywhere from Shoreditch to the Brighton Lanes. And Victorians with elaborate facial hair were known as Whiskerandos. That's a great name, isn't it? I could call my puppy Jeff Whiskerando. Sorry, I was a little bit late. Um... That's my guest today, Tom Chapman. In the 16th century, women used arsenic, cat shit and vinegar to remove body hair. They were advised, when the skin feels hot, wash quickly with hot water so the flesh doesn't come off. Jesus, I'm going to stop moaning about waxing. Lord Byron would respond to the locks of pubic hair, yes, the locks of pubic hair, sent by adoring women fans by sending them, in return, 
clippings from his dog. And a Chinese proverb, you cannot prevent the birds of sorrow from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from building nests in your hair. Well, I've never worried so much about my hair for a podcast before, so I hope it's all right. Tom Chapman is the founder of the Lions Barber Collective. He's an award-winning barber, author, public speaker, and international educator. Tom started the Lions Barber Collective after losing a friend to suicide, and the mission of the collective is to reduce male suicide rates by encouraging men to talk while they're getting a trim. The collective has had meaningful impact since it was founded in 2015, and it has saved lives. As Tom says, this can be life-saving. Well, I know it's life-saving. We've saved lives, and I hope we continue to save others. Trigger warning for this episode. There is, as you might expect from that uh, summary of Tom's life, there is talk of suicide and, crucially, suicide prevention during this episode. So we've included plentiful resources in the show notes for you to turn to if you are in any way affected by the content of this episode. Um, These resources include hubofhope.co.uk, mypickle.org and of course the Lions Barber Collective itself. The podcast does contain a lot of really helpful practical advice too, particularly in the second half. I have to say when I was listening back to this one for the edit I found myself getting quite teary a couple of times. I think this could be one of the most important episodes we've done and it is also, I promise you, a lovely listen. Tom and I talked about haircuts, mental health, well-being, loss, life, difficult conversations, intimacy, public speaking, familiar strangers, curiosity, asking questions and listening to answers. But I started by asking him why not everyone likes going to the hairdresser. We, we all take it for granted, we all just do it, but it's quite intimate, it's quite you know, like other people touching your head and your face and holding knife, like sharp blades and things. It's quite a, if you, if you said to somebody, this is what we're going to do. And it was a new concept. People would think it was a bit weird, wouldn't they? It was personal space and holding scissors and. Especially if they were holding a knife, as you that. first said, I'm glad you cut hair with scissors. Well, I'm not so cut, worried I now. Got, I was thinking <laughs> I'd get a, a cutthroat razor is what I was thinking. Is um so yeah that I mean it's a really good good place to start is obviously with hair given that that's yeah. why I really wanted to get you and I heard um Helen Russell talking about the Lions Barber Collective she talks about right. it in her book How to Be Sad and I as soon as I heard it I was like wow this is an incredible concept and I have to get Tom on the podcast I think you're perfect for anything called Namaste <laughs> motherfuckers the combination of the soft and the hard so tell me about. Well, tell us, anyone who's listening who doesn't know what it is, tell us about the Lions Barber Collective. Uh, so the Lions Barber Collective, uh, the, the vision is a world free from suicide and our mission is to create non-clinical, non-judgmental or safe spaces where people feel comfortable to talk about their mental health and then be able to signpost them to support and information, basically. Um, but it, it came about, that's that's a nutshell of the charity pitch thing there. Mm-hmm. But um, basically... I'm in, I'm because... donating. You're very convincing <laughs> already. Yeah, well, it, it started because I lost, I lost a friend to suicide in 2014 and I'd seen him days before and I and um, I didn't realise that he was struggling. I didn't realise that he was going through anything. Um, and when I found out that he had taken his life it was 
it was quite a bit of a shock to me and I was very much uh, asking the same sort of questions of why, why would you do this? Why would anyone want to take their life? Why would, why would he feel so alone? All those kinds of things, but also what if questions, what if I'd realized that he was struggling? What if I'd asked him, what if he told me he was suicidal? Would I have known what to do? And uh, the, the answer to all that was no, I'd had no idea what to do. And I wouldn't have asked him because I wouldn't have been able to recognize. And I probably would have been too scared to anyway. Um, But it was at, at his funeral, I was one of the first people not to have a seat because it was so busy at the crematorium. And I was ushered to the front, stood next to here, uh, stood next to him basically in his coffin, looking back at the room, which is kind of a weird situation to be in at a funeral because normally you look at the back of people's heads yeah. and you probably interact with those people next to you. So you well, had the perspective the from the coffin in a way. Exactly. Well, yeah, mm. pretty much. And and that was that was the um a big part of it for me. And I stood there looking at all these faces which spilled out into the atrium and lobby and beyond still thinking all this loss, all this love, all these people were there for him or I here for him now. And he felt so alone. He felt that suicide was his only option. And that was really, and still is one of the main sort of driving forces for me because I remember at the thing thing at the wake after was thinking, I need to do something about this. This can't happen to more. This happening too much, you know, um, to a young 27-year-old man who I thought was okay. How does this happen? So that was really why I started it. And I, it was meant to be, initially, it was one-off project, okay? It was meant to be a one-off project of a, a catalogue of men's haircut images. Basically, that was the idea. And I got 30 barbers together, and we all donated a haircut picture which was incredibly difficult it was you know i know we were called the lions but it was a bit like herding cats at the time because a lot of them hadn't done photo shoots before so there's pictures from phones and all sorts and actually that probably why was did it more called the lions than, where, where yeah. did the oh so that did affect <laughs> um, your mental health trying to get the pictures yeah. that's ironic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well yeah so i think it was it, it really was the hardest thing i did up at that point and career, they were but, called the lions we, because and that's yeah and so basically what happened was we had 30 of us together we're discussing names for it we wanted to be a collective barber collective and we asked i asked them what names they had and one of the guys said how about the lions because it was barbers from england island scotland and wales like the rugby team mm -hmm. so the british lions so that's why uh, it was called the lions and i thought that's names as good as any and then you know obviously lions are a symbolism for lots of things aren't they so it kind of sort of played in very well and that's how that how that progressed and then this I was telling somebody about it being a one-off project, a guy named Paul, and um, just talking to him about suicide prevention, getting men to talk, uh, the problems around it, and, and listening to his problems and encouraging him to know that he could go and ask for help. That was enough to save his life, which made me think, well, if I can do this, then obviously the hair industry is already doing that, and that made me well, it developed it even further and become more of an actual thing and want to become a charity. And so, yeah, it was it was meant to be a one-off project, which just evolved and grew legs and paws and the mane and <laughs> run away. And I'm still chasing it five and a half years, six years later. And had its own little it lion cubs. Yeah. And, is, um, and we'll talk in a moment a bit about men's mental health in particular and some of the statistics around that and we have put uh, we'll put some links in the show notes and in the intro and outro about yeah help for people and what people can do and the fact that this you know this episode does obviously contain quite a lot of talk of suicide so before we talk about specifically because that's one of the things that really interested me when I heard it was that you're specifically addressing what is the biggest killer of young men right suicide yeah. and 
there is something about I hadn't really thought about this till I thought about what you're doing but as somebody who has hair done and nails done and I spend a lot of time in makeup chairs and tv studios and stuff some of those relationships are the very most important relationships I know um Richard Osman said to me that he found when he does pointless it's his relationship with the makeup person he has that's his that's his like saving grace that that time in that chair with her is just an absolute treat for him yeah so we do have these really intimate relationships with people who we sort of do and don't really know. And that must be a really interesting thing, a kind of bit of a double-edged sword for you guys who do that for a living, right? Because that's a hell of a burden on, on all of you. Yeah, I think, you know, I said I had that idea to take it further after a conversation which saved a life and made me realise that the other barbers and hairdressers are doing this anyway. I've been doing this for 20 years and... When I, when I started telling my clients about it, they said, oh, well, you really helped me when I went through my divorce or you really helped me when I did this. Oh, this is a great idea because if you doing this, listening and listening and so on and so forth. And I hadn't even really realized I was doing it because it kind of becomes just part of the, the job role. And and I think also, you know, we, we have a level of trust. We have intimacy. We have license to touch. We are um, familiar strangers. You see us every six weeks or so. And we I've known people for 20 years. I've seen them through... First dates with now wives, miscarriages, newborns, funerals, job redundancies, new interviews, you know, all the whole thing, you know, and we've been there for that, but we're not part of their social circle. So we, there's something about that intimacy and that ability to leave it alone, leave it behind, sorry, when you leave that chair. Um, but I also think hairdressers and barbers and beauticians are in an incredible position and they have to be, they're emotionally intelligent, they're resilient, they are uh, great listeners. They're hugely, hugely skilled in these areas. And it, and that's not even their job. Their job is to cut your hair. Um, and I don't think they get enough recognition for the, the, the skill set that they have. And it's always seen as, I'm just a barber, I'm just a hairdresser. Uh, because it's something you do if you're not academically uh, able to do anything else. And I know I had that situation when I was going to go to university. And my mom suggested me to go into hairdressing because I used to cut and color my own hair. I thought, God, that's such a brilliant idea. And all my teachers were disappointed in me because I didn't go to uni. Right, because um, I was going to ask, is that, I do think you're absolutely right on all of those counts. It's massively underestimated. Also, even forgetting the emotional intelligence, the fact you're having quite intense, intimate conversations and doing a really technically skilled job at the same time. Most mm. of us just have to do the one or the other. So even that alone, the multitasking element, let alone the level of emotional intelligence that's required. But for you, was it then, because um, this podcast is in part about work and what people choose to do with their careers getting into hairdressing for you then was that was that a real pull for you or was it so for you it wasn't oh I can't go to university I'm not doing so well academically it was I feel really drawn to hairdressing yeah I, I used to cut and color my own hair so I had like a bright pink mohawks and leopard print hair and shave it off and start again and I and I was very much into my music and music influences fashion quite a lot doesn't it so mm -hmm. that was kind of my thing and I wasn't I was studying ancient history and Egyptology because I liked history, but it wasn't there wasn't an end goal there. And I, and it's it, my mum suggested it to me. I'm so glad she did because it's the best thing I ever did going into going into hair. And it enabled me to be creative, enabled me to be me. I could do, but I, you know, I could remember when I got my first uh, my first job. I was at Tony and Guy, and one of them, my manager said to me, he "said um, be prepared to be a counsellor as well as a." hairstylist and I was just like what I'm here to have fun social job interact with people cut hair create um 
it, it couldn't have been much more right in the sense that you do become this sort of unofficial counsellor that um, does hear people. Like I can remember being 18, being on the shop floor and feeling pretty comfortable with doing hair and then cutting a, a woman's hair and she started talking about, I don't know, the menopause or or someone talking about a divorce. Or I'm thinking, oh my God, like I was I was quite innocent, 18 year old to be fair at the time, but I just, I wasn't aware of so many things that were going on. So that did take me by surprise. And I think it's um, something we do need to look forward to. And as you mentioned a minute ago about how do we look after, how who listens to the listeners and how do we look after them? It's something that I want to, I want to make a difference to. And I do have plans to try and do something about moving forward um which we're working on a couple of things but if you're a samaritan you have to offload before you leave your, yeah it's like a decompression time isn't it and you also if always do it in partners you, you never yeah. you're never on your own doing a shift yeah exactly exactly and i think there's something that's definitely definitely down i think obviously if we can look after the hair and beauty industry then the infrastructure they're on every high street every village every town they can potentially look after the entire nation we've got accessibility we're reaching the unreachable and everybody will not, well, actually, even a, one friend of mine who was incredibly close to her, her mum um, before, one of the only things she managed to get her mum to do in her last kind of weeks and months was to go to the hairdresser. She still managed to get her mum to the hairdresser. And then when her mum couldn't get to the hairdresser, to the hairdresser, the same one would come to her. And that was mm. probably about the only relationship she had outside of her own mm. children until literally two days before she died. So it literally yeah. does take you from not quite cradle to grave, because I don't know about your kids, but mine didn't have a huge amount of hair. Actually, one of them did, but that's another story. But um, not enough, he needed a hairdresser. But is, um, did you have a natural skill then? Because I, w- I watched your TED talk, and again, we'll put links to that in the show notes. And you seem, you are a very natural communicator. You are now anyway. So right now talking to you on this, watching you do a TED talk, you have a natural propensity for that. Is that something that's that's developed or do you think you did already have that and that's probably part of what, what made you a really good fit for the job you do? Uh, I think I was absolutely terrified for my TED talk and it still stresses me out just thinking about it. Um, well, you, you styled uh, that one out mighty well. <laughs> my wife was in the crowd and she was two days overdue was she in a uh, white t-shirt? Yeah. Yeah, I watched, I saw a pregnant woman. Like, oh, I was, I was thinking, yeah. oh, she's really, she looked very proud of you. I was thinking either that woman's uh, with you or wants to be. That was my view of the, <laughs> well, she, she, it. Was well, it wasn't for her. I wouldn't have done it, basically. She oh, really? It for it. And I was just praying that she was going to have the baby that day, but she didn't. She's very selfish <laughs> of my second child. But um, no, it was, uh, it, yeah, I think. uh, my parents would say as a kid I was always off making new friends I was always interacting with people I liked you know communicating and getting to know people um so I think it it becomes I think good hairdressers and good barbers don't necessarily have to be the highest skilled hairdressers or barbers or beauticians they have to obviously have to have a level of skill but it's about having the communication about having the creating a nice experience and I think to be successful you have to be almost a bit like a social chameleon you evolve to everybody who's in your chair um as they come and sit in your chair you have I mean your experience with your hairdresser is you and you get to know that hairdresser from your point of view is your relationship but the next person that sits in their chair might be a doctor or a I don't know uh, a mechanic or this or it could and they're all different types of people and of course you have to get on with them but you do you sort of 
be able to sort of manipulate yourself a little bit to evolve and get on with that person. And yeah, you know, I always say that some people know the real me and other people know the respectful member of society that they think I am. So, but it's yeah, all so, you. That's the, yeah. the, the, the I always, yeah. um, it, when I do, I'm also on the, um, on the talking circuit. So when I was like, watching you be such a natural, I was like, Jesus, that's all we need is people like you who kind of start your own thing. And next thing you know, you're great speakers. No, but I'm joking. It's amazing that you're going out doing the speaker work. But one of the things I talk about when I do my kind of talks around the circuit is the gap between the different senses of self and there's the self you portray mm. to the outside world the self you think you are and the self you really are so at a minimum mm. there's those three selves yeah and it's my very firm belief that as you go through life the bigger the gap between those selves the more the scope for at best and not very fulfilled life and at worst some mm. kind of serious physical and or mental ill health and I think the strategies that you kind of get rewarded for, like when you're younger sometimes, styling it out, looking a certain way, acting a certain way, you can get rewarded for that. You know, you do well in your job, your mates think you're really cool. But as you get a little bit older, that the gap, it's like metal fatigue, it becomes incredibly hard. You maybe could keep up a fake front for like a year at uni or, or you know, mm. your sixth form. But if you're trying to do that for a decade, two decades, three decades, yeah something's going to have to give right so it's yeah. about trying to narrow that gap so there is a place to have authentic conversations in an authentic way does does that kind of resonate with with some of your thoughts around around mental health yeah 100 percent. i think um this i think age definitely has a thing and i also think that the authentic conversations i also think that the barber barber's chair the hairdresser's chair the beauty chair is a space where people tend to have a, a genuine conversation that is reasonably lacking now we, we can't we, we communicate through our phones and technology and, and actually having half an hour to an hour where you sit down and you actually have a conversation with someone with no interruptions is getting rarer and rarer so I think that is really really um, a valuable time in itself anyway I think it's also that idea of when I look at some of the most pivotal conversations I've had they've often been I've talked about this on the podcast before but there's something also about conversations either with strangers, and I know you're not a stranger mm. to some of your clients, but you will be to others, and also with people where you're not making direct eye contact. So yeah. you are obviously looking at them, but there's the, there's the through constructive, the yeah, through a mirror. And I've done quite a lot of, um, I've done material about sideways conversations that with my kids, that's when the slam, the kind of the absolute, you know, dingers of things they'd done wrong. They'd always be told to me when they were in the car, usually together, one car, next to me, yeah. one in the back. And I'd be like, shit, you know, and you're trying not to sh crash the car and you can't <laughs> scream at them as much as you want. Cause but they, and those really intimate conversations you have. And do you think there is something about that, um, that lack of... There is eye contact, but it's it's diffused eye contact. Yeah, uh, we always talk about this during the training. We say that there is that. I think especially men aren't very good at eye contact, and it's talking about you can sit down with someone, eye contact, and say, "So, what's wrong with you? What's going on? Do you like to talk to me?" It's kind of it's kind of confrontational. It's a little bit scary, but there is that. Uh, we always talk about the road trip thing as well. There's so many times you go on road trips with people and you have an amazing conversation sitting next to them, uh, yeah. sitting next to them. So I think you. Know, we have that eye contact through the mirror, but at the same time, it's also very intimate. We've got, you know, we're touching their head, which is quite an intimate space to be, you know, be able to, not many people run their fingers through your hair really, um, but the releasing the oxytocin, which is a feel good hormone. So there's, I think there's a lot of things that make it a sort of a perfect environment for people to be able to open up and talk the stranger thing. Cause I'm, we are a familiar stranger really, aren't we? We're not, I, it's funny because I see people in town that whose hair I've cut, it's an awkward situation <laughs> because it's like, 
I don't You're really seeing know them in the to... wild. Yeah, yeah, it's really weird. But if they come and sit and they're cutting their hair, we end up just chatting away for an hour about whatever. But it's like, oh, hi, yeah, uh, yeah, have a good day. You kind of make your own way. But it's, it's just it's weird, isn't it? It is a weird situation. And there's not many jobs like it, I don't think. Well, also the number of people that you see, I've heard you talk about the fact that the average um, person in your profession has about, listens for about 2,000 hours a year. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. And so you're having, what, 10 to 12 different conversations, clients a day? Is that the kind of, which if you think about a therapist, I mean, I've worked as a coach and trained in various aspects of therapy and coaching. And there's no way you would dream of doing 10 to 12 a day. You know, if you did three in a day, that would be a lot. I I mean, I'm, I'm maybe, I don't know, professional therapist might be doing five in a day but for you to be having that many conversations in that way and then switching straight from one type of person to the next like the at the very best kind of social and emotional chameleon ninja standards that's one hell of a thing to pull off right yeah it is and I tell you what it's such a strange thing as well because you remember stuff about people you remember like, without even you make notes and like, you, they, you come in and people will say to you, how did you remember that I was going here for dinner last time I saw you? And I don't know what it is about it. And we, we often joke about it when we have a groups of hairdressers together doing training, how we just seem to remember these things about people. I don't know what how, it, whether it's situational because it's like, oh, I'm in the same place with the same person. Your brain clicks into it and thinks, well, that's, that's you know, oh, last time they were here, they were going skiing. So ask me about skiing. But there is something... It's, it is a skill. It's hugely skilled, but it's it's not part. It's weird because it's, it's not part of our job. It's not part of our job to be this, you know, uh, confidant or emotional friend or you know, part time counselor. I don't know what it, what we call us, but it, it's very strange how it's kind of becomes that that relationship is built up. And, and like you said before, you your friend's mum. That relationship was the only relationship outside of a outside of a family member. And I had a situation when we went back to work. I think it was like july the 4th or something was it where uh, uh independence day wasn't it uh, in america they mm-hmm. called it trim dependence day in the in the industry and um i have one of my clients hair that i cut he uh he was fine I had a great conversation with him to start off with how's it going what you've been up to how was lockdown and the rest of it but as soon as i started cutting his hair he started crying like really crying and obviously i stopped and come around to the front of him and asked him what was going on and why he was feeling this way and he said, I, there's nothing wrong. He just, I just, I haven't been touched for months because I've been locked down by myself. And as soon as you touched my head and started cutting, I just overwhelmed and that, I haven't had any interaction that long. Do you know, it's really funny you say that because when you were talking about we don't have many people touching our hair, touching our head, um, and it made, I got welled up because I'm a, nearly a year into a breakup and I was like, and I was like, oh God, yeah, that's one of the things I massively miss. So it's funny that even the power of you talking about it, mm-hmm. I was thinking, yeah, that is one of the intimate things that it, it really matters. And I, I've heard you talk about, you know, as much as addressing kind of mental health conditions, it's about addressing the human condition and that, that yeah. idea that we all need to love and be loved. And yeah. even though obviously that, that your hairdresser isn't falling in love with you as a client, but there is something about, it, it's quite a loving touch, albeit it's not administered <laughs> through love, um, although hopefully through kind of healthy professional care, it is, admin- yeah. but there is something about that, isn't there? That very, that basic human need to belong and be touched and be held that increasingly as a society we don't have. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, um... <laughs> Everything's becoming so distant. I think maybe lockdowns and that, I don't know, maybe that helped speed things up a bit because I didn't hear, I haven't heard of Zoom in 20, 
beginning of 2020. I didn't even know and it look existed. Look at us so. now. Like we <laughs> exactly, live yeah. without it. With our pretend <laughs> professional backdrops that we've hastily put together. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, it's just, it, you know, but I'm also thankful for it because imagine if this had happened in 2001 and we'd been in lockdown playing Snake on the Nokia, Nokia 3210 for yeah. a year, you'd have definitely lost it, wouldn't you? So, you know, we've been able to connect with us, but I do think it's so important that we have that human touch that human connection that that and the, the relationships and being able to hold community uh, conversation have communication around that and i think there's uh there's a little bit of a dying dying art isn't it just to be able to hold a conversation with somebody new uh, and this people do tend to struggle with that and maybe it's something that i've i've always done but well, it's also with phones down, like I always find it really weird when I see people in their hairdresser with like on their phones and basically trying to almost ignore the fact they're having their hair cut or just get on with their work. Because I do think it's quite an important two way. Well, partly I'm always looking at my hair kind of, is this all right? But partly it is quite an important thing. I, I, it's one of the reasons I like having my nails done is because it is such an intimate conversation. You can't do anything yep. else because you've got your nails are wet. It's, yep. And you you hear when you, it's funny, I had a conversation with the woman who's been doing my nails for years and she's always, my birth name's Caroline, not Callie. And she always calls me Carolina. And um, she's mm-hmm. like, hi, Carolina. And I just thought it was kind of a sweet way for her to refer to me. And then we ended up, it was just us in the salon um, at the end end of the day the other day and she was telling me about she's got a kid the same age as my youngest and she we're both single mums and we've always kind of bonded over that and she basically told me the story of how the the guy that the the baby's dad had been completely abusive to them and she'd ended up in a being taken in by somebody she knew from the street called Carolina and that was the kind of person and she said to that to this day that person's kind of saved her life and 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 it felt suddenly it was just so moving to hear that story and to think I don't know to know that that thing that she just called me in the salon that I thought was just sweet and funny was like I had this incredible story and also really honoured because I've heard you talk about just when she told me that I just said I'm so honoured that you told me that and that you felt that I was a person to tell that to she said I've never told anyone that story since it happened I said well I'm so incredibly honoured that you picked me and I didn't know what else to say but that's kind of all I knew I could say because I know there's um there's a there's a lot in what you do that the barber talk training in terms of getting people ready to be able to have these conversations and that is a really important part of having you on the podcast because you've saved many many lives through the Lions Barber Collective and if any can be saved by anything we can say in this podcast then that will be make my whole podcast worthwhile and more so so first of all do you want to tell people listening a couple of the statistics around suicide and particularly in the case of men yeah of course i firstly i say it is it it is an honor to be told isn't it and i think that's something we need to really start to open up to um that when people open up and talk to us it is an honor and we should be grateful because they probably haven't told anybody else or very few people and um and making sure you're a safe space is, is an incredible thing to do and i if i go out for a night out here where i live guarantee someone will come up to me and say you're the guy that does the mental health stuff aren't you like, yeah that's me and they go well and then just offload to me and i think that, that's the one of the most powerful things we can do but going back to your I question they buy you a drink after all that freeloading <laughs> my friends are only going where the have you come now <laughs> um, but yeah uh, but yes, we're back to the statistics around it. Like suicide is the biggest killer in young people. Uh, nearly eighty percent of them are men, and it's globally, it's someone dies by suicide every forty seconds, which is an incredible thing to think about. And, and there's some places that don't even recognise it still. So in Dubai, they don't recognise 
that suicide is a thing. They just say, uh, we did a we did a, um, a government summit out there, and they said, oh, we don't have suicide here. It's, it's illegal, so it doesn't exist. Um, so yeah, there's probably even more of a shocking statistic around that number, which is just terrifying. And something that uh, really uh, in, interests me quite recently is I found out that 72 percent of people who end their life have had no contact with mental health services in the 12 months before they die. But in those 12 months, they've probably had a haircut or their nails done or a beauty treatment. Or and the idea of what we're trying to do is trying to catch them in that moment provide as many opportunities as possible to have these conversations and direct them to those resources because we're not trying to turn people in. I know we've mentioned counsellors and therapists a few times, but we're not trying to turn hair and beauty professionals into counsellors or therapists. We're trying to bridge that gap between the communities we serve and the resources that are available. So those 72% that aren't getting caught in, in, the, in the communities, can we can hopefully protect some of them um, and get them, to, get them to the resources that already exist because there are quite a lot and... The final statistic I'll just say is that the estimated cost of a death by suicide uh, in the UK is £1.7 million for each person who takes their life, which was incredibly shocking to me because I'd never considered a, a, a financial cost to that life lost. It was always the emotional you know, struggle for me, losing friends to suicide. Um, but it wasn't until we filmed a documentary that, we, that I found that number out, which really yeah, did shock me quite a lot. Hence, you and there's a, a really good the, the 1.7 million pound haircut, which is something. Again, right, we'll yeah. put a link. We'll put a link to that. Namaste, motherfuckers. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. And a couple of things before we get into what people can do. So I think a really important thing, first of all, to say, like the guilt you probably had after losing your friend in 2014 to suicide. I've lost two really close friends to suicide, both of whom were men um, in their 30s and mm. not, not connected, I should add. One of the things I think people often think when they've lost someone to suicide is I should have stopped it. They have massive, you know, this kind of the guilt that you have afterwards. So I guess one thing really importantly to say to anyone listening is that it is that this isn't in any way for us, any of us to feel guilty that that, that we should have done more for somebody who's all, right. who's gone. Uh, because we don't know the intricacies of their circumstances. We don't know if we had it in our gift to do that. So this is all about looking at what we can do now going forward and, yeah. and not berating ourselves for what's already um, an enormous loss. Most people listening will have some connection to, to suicide, unfortunately. So with that kind of amnesty on beating ourselves up as a firm setting for this, I'm really interested in, in the kind of barber talk training you do to train mm. to train barbers to be able to do this and then how we as kind of muggles might be able to do something of any use as well so can, can you tell us a bit about that yeah look, uh, firstly as well there's something I when I lost a, a friend to suicide um reasonably recently he was part of the lines he was a volunteer so that was that was that was probably one of the most difficult ones for me in that sense because I felt like he should have known I felt like he should have been he was part of it and and I actually uh spent some time with Dr Peter Aitken who refers to himself as my pet psychiatrist he's a he's a, a lovely man but do you take him down the pub if you need backup for those random conversations? <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Always buying him a drink. He's like, you're very generous. Yeah, I've actually taken him for coffee after this. So. I have no <laughs> doubt you are. You take him everywhere with you. Um, but he, um, but yeah, so he said to me, look, you know, I always talk about the eight out of 10 people who attempt suicide 
and 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 fail are glad they didn't die and he said yeah but you've got to he, this is one of the things that made me sort of turn everything on my head he said but there's remember there's two people that wish they had there's some people that it mm, is their, their, it is their life at the end of the day and it is what they want to do and you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink mm-hmm. and all these things so yeah it is suicide is preventable but backing you up on that yeah you know, we don't have to put ourselves through any more guilt and we can't save everybody and we can just make as many opportunities as possible and that leads on to the the training in the sense that um this is what we're trying to do create as many opportunities to have amazing conversations um that would potentially save lives um i developed the training because i when i lost my friend alex i went and i took mental health first aid suicide assist safe talk I did a zero suicide alliance. I did everything I could get my hands on because I was really, really keen to find out more. And I thought, this is fantastic. We should get more barbers and hairdressers to do this. Um, And I got funding for mental health first aid training. So I went to go and do it again, basically, because it's so good. And I had to try and find 12 hairdressers and barbers. I thought, this will be so easy. This will be so good. But of course, I was in my world thinking that and the general interest from the hair and beauty industry it was quite difficult because it was two days. I had to get people out of their shops who are they're most, mostly self-employed. So they're losing earnings them, those days. Yeah, yeah. And, and get them to a location so it costs them, and so it's going to cost them a fair bit to to get out of their work to come to it. Um, I managed to get it filled up eventually, and the feedback from a lot of people was it was very, very intense. It was very in depth. It made me feel nervous because there was role play and all these other things. So I, I kind of took all those things into account. And I figured maybe there's something we can do that's more bespoke for the hair and beauty industry, something that is relevant to them. It's, it's quite insular industry. Um, it's by the industry, for the industry, basically. And I worked with Dr. Peter Aitken, also Jerry Cadigan from Public Health, and put my, they sort of oversaw my ideas. And uh, I basically go for about 18 months of trying different ways. I come to the four-hour sort of the, the magic number, the four-hour training session. Um, and based around the four pillars of recognizing the signs that someone's struggling, asking good questions that gives that person permission to talk, listening well with empathy and without judgment, and then finally help to help. So helping that person find the help they need. Um, and that was sort of a sandwich between the introduction and also about how to look after yourself, how the five steps to mental well-being. You know, uh, um, you can't pour from the empty cup and all of that. So that's kind of the basis of the training. So four hours, so half a day out of the uh, out of the salon. So I guess that's a bit more appealing to people that they don't, they're not missing even a whole day. Um, do you provide it virtually, by the way? Now in the world we're in, so it, can it be done virtually? Yeah, we do. So we do Bob Talk online. So we've got Bob Talk Lite, which yeah. you can go and take on the website. Anyone can do that. It takes about 15, 20 minutes. Then we've got Bob Talk online and Bob Talk Live. So it's the same thing, and we can do. Um, it's via Zoom, basically. So it's the same thing, but on Zoom. And we found it really popular. We did a lot through lockdown whilst people couldn't cut hair, which was incredible. Yeah, it must have been a brilliant uh, thing. Anything that advances yeah. your skills or your knowledge or your contact with others, I think was a godsend, wasn't it, during lockdown? And yeah. and do you, looking at those those four kind of points then, so, and, and it's it's there's lots of practical advice I know that people are going to be able to use from this conversation. Yeah. So the recognised bit, what, what would that look like? So we... Um, I didn't want to go to the point of diagnosing things. I didn't want to say, look, this is bipolar. This is what it looks like. This is depression. This is what Because I'm trying to stay away from the clinical. We don't want to be doctors. And we don't need, and, and mental health is a lot more than just all these things that are clinically diagnosed issues. Mm-hmm. Like our physical health, it's not just heart attacks, cancer, 
whatever, you know, these life-threatening things, it's it's everything from that to a migraine, a headache and the flu, and it's a moving scale. And actually mental health is too. It's a, you know, it's loss, it's low mood, it's, you know, situational things that are going on. It doesn't have to be a clinically diagnosed thing. So we wanted to be able to allow people to recognise signs in their clients that, might, that gives them the uh, opportunity to ask a question. So it's anything like anything, but essentially it comes down to changes in behaviour. So if you, and we're in a great position to do this because we know what our clients are like. We, they come in, they always talk about the football. They come in, they always talk about the kids. So they come in and they, you know, they've got a nine o'clock hair appointment, but their hair is always washed and shampooed and blow dried beautifully, even though they're going to get their hair washed as soon as they get there at mm-hmm. 10 past nine. You know, so if, if that changes, then that's a sign that something has happened. We're not mm-hmm. saying it's suicide. We're not saying it's definitely, you know, bad memory, but if something has happened. So if that person's body language is, you know, they're normally set up right and they're very kind of like calm and, you know, and then the next time they come in and they're hunched over, that's the sign you've recognised the change in their behaviour and that gives you the opportunity to ask questions. And it can be anything from, you know, uh, sleeping too much, not sleeping enough, gaining weight, losing weight, new obsessions. New, there's so many different things it can be. And when you talk to people about it, they're like, oh, it could be anything. I'm like, well, it can be anything. But the key is you know that person a little bit before. So it's changes in their behavior. Um, and for example, if it was weight loss, say someone comes in every six weeks and they lose three pounds a week, and that's 18 pounds, you're going to really notice that they've mm-hmm. lost 18 pounds. But if you lived with that person, mm-hmm. if it was three pounds a week, it's only a small amount every week. So you probably wouldn't see it as much as if I saw it as their barber or hairdresser. So you're seeing that I definitely see it if I lost three pounds a week, I'd see it with joy. Yeah, and my <laughs> <laughs> and you'd know something was wrong if I turned up at the hairdresser at nine in the morning having washed my hair, or if I even managed to be there on time. But the so you're recognising, not diagnosing. So I think because with yeah. all of this, it's being genuinely one of the things when I looked at those four pillars which is something I've always espoused in kind of therapy and training and coaching is the idea that you're genuinely being curious. So you're approaching things mm. with a curiosity, which is in its own right objective, and you're not making assumptions. So you're letting yeah. the person tell you. So the recognising is opening the door to the fact that you'll then have a conversation. So you're not assuming you've yeah. noticed anything that means a certain thing. You're just going, okay, this is worth now having a chat about and seeing. So the ask, because that's such an important bit, isn't it, is the ask, not tell. And also the idea of listening to learn rather than listening to respond which is something that I think people get kind of muddled with um, sometimes and it's quite hard to listen to learn so so what's the what's the asking bit of your kind of four pillars what does that entail so yeah so once you recognize changes in behavior it's then about asking good questions and it's I think hairdressers are quite good at these questions and when we do the training it's more about um, empowering them and reassuring them they are asking quite good questions if they realise it or not so um, we always do the how's it going you're alright mate but it's not really a question is it it's a greeting so it's about asking those questions again asking better questions like how are you feeling today Callie rather than you're right, mate how's it going and, you know, you're asking them how are you feeling and then putting time scales on things so today and using people's names so directing at them because if you use a if you said how are you feeling generally i'm okay you know because we just kind of put a general like oh yeah i'm all right fine but if we try and put time scales on things that really helps so you could even use a time scale thing with um what have you been up to since the last time we saw you and then you can find out that they're, they're going to start thinking about that time scale is there anything that's happened in that time scale or another question which 
can really tell you how people are feeling and how they're looking about their future should you recognize that something's not quite right is by asking them have you got anything planned what's going on you know this mm. weekend or because if someone's got if someone starts asking answering those questions with answers like oh there's no point i've you know there's no point in going on i've had enough yeah, those kind of, they're quite you know desperate responses to the questions because i think everyone's got something to look forward to well most people have got something to look forward to no matter how small but if someone's very negative around that future plans and that's a sign that someone's not doing too great but also the questions of um how's work how's family and also the third space because you get to know clients third spaces whether it's the gym or the or i don't know fishing or whatever their hobbies and that may be and if there's something wrong in our lives it's normally situational and it's normally compared to those things isn't it our family our work or our third space whatever that may be and if we're not doing it you know um so actually those very simple questions that aren't too i don't know um too direct can really start a conversation off about finding out about their mental well-being or what's what they're dealing with um but they're brave questions, aren't they? They might not, but they're brave questions insofar as one of the reasons we maybe don't ask those questions is partly because we don't know what the questions are we should ask. But possibly we're all guilty of not quite knowing what to do if we ask them. So we're a bit like, well, I'll ask you that. But what if you actually tell me, you know, when you yeah. say, how are you doing? And someone goes, oh, it's awful. You know, I've just had a miscarriage and I'm getting divorced. If you'd be like, oh, God, I don't really know what to say to that, perhaps. Yeah. So it is brave to ask them and to, and to, to know what the questions are and then ask and listen. Because the yeah. listening, without judgment or over relating is so important isn't it it's so important not to be like yeah no I know and when I get low I go for a run uh, and everyone's like you <laughs> yeah. know I, I don't, you know it's it's so so that that listening objectively and without judgment and giving them the space to talk is there anything yeah. you'd you know in terms of advice around that listening part because it's quite an unpressured yeah. situation if you know you don't have to have the answers isn't it if you know all your job is to do is listen then we can all do that yeah of course and I think uh, we don't ask quite, we don't definitely don't ask more direct questions like are you suicidal or do you have a plan because we're scared of the answer and I can hand on heart say every time I've asked someone are you suicidal they're still alive today so that is it is and a it really doesn't put question. the idea in their head it, it that's the key put the thing idea to say head, no. yeah so yeah. asking somebody hey. that yeah yeah, so that if, if you get to that point where people are saying things like, I can't go on, I've had enough, then yes, it is okay to ask direct questions. Um, and are you safe? Is that is Because that's the question I ask friends. Yeah. I'm like, are you are you safe? But is yeah. that a little bit not direct enough then? Is that is that kind of... Um, it, I mean, it, yeah, it's difficult because people are could could um, define safe in a different way. But yeah. but yeah, I mean, one of the worst things you can say is, you're not thinking about doing something stupid, are you? Yeah, to so many people say and that, and it's like well, yeah, already, judgment and shame. Yeah. And, yeah, they don't think that idea is stupid right now. It's their, it's their, probably their solution that they've come up with that will get them out of the hole they're in. So, um, yeah, it's, it is not a very nice way of asking. And it's people, not a selfish thing either. I think it's really easy for people to mm -hmm. think, and, and we all, we've all probably felt a range of emotions when we've lost people to suicide. One of which I think is anger. It's natural as well at a certain point, especially if you're close to the survivors of that in that family or that social group, to feel anger as well as a mm -hmm. as a passing emotion, and that it's fine. Yeah. You, know, you can own whatever emotion you feel, but it's also to realise that people at that point. That people don't feel they have a choice so they're being drawn it's it's not a kind of oh I think I'll do this today it's I don't know what else to do I'm I'm so drawn to this and so unable to see a way out of it so it's not at the time feeling it's not feeling like a stupid thing at all it's feeling like the only choice they've got often isn't it or it's not even a choice it's the only path they've got at that point yeah 
a lot of people have real sense of clarity and, and euphoria when they decide. That's why a lot of people say, um, oh, so, I saw them last month, they were so happy. And it's because they've kind of gone, well, this is the best solution for me, for everyone involved. And they feel like they've sorted everything out they, you know, before they go and everyone would be better off, better off without me. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, yeah, it is a, yeah, it's a very desperate time, but it normally it's people want to uh, escape that issue, that problem rather than their life. And that's the only thing they've come to as I've had suicidal thoughts before. So, you know, I never actually had a plan or act out on it. And it scared me a lot to think that that was it, but it was my brain trying to work out a way of getting out of the situations that we were in and what would solve it. So it's the it, kind of, the- um, yeah, it, it's the escape, it's the escape button, isn't it? It's pressing the kind of ejector seat mm. in the plane. Yeah. And it, cause there's also, I, I know when I, I've had a couple of pretty kind of intense periods of, of mental ill health and, and a lot of um, quite intense kind of psychiatric help in my forties, a couple of different times. And the first of those two times, it definitely was, I, I because I absolutely adore my children and I, and again, I'm not judging people who have children and aren't able to see another way out, but that that's probably what made me never seriously contemplate doing anything. But I definitely spent my whole time trying to convince myself why staying around would be a good idea. Mm. And I remember a therapist saying to me, I can't remember if it's called suicide ideation or what it's called, but when you're yeah. at a point where you spend your whole waking hours trying to tell yourself why you shouldn't commit suicide, yeah. that's a very serious point of your mental ill health. And that, and again, anyone who's listening who's at that point where they're like, well, I'm not, I'm trying to tell myself why not to do it. it, it it's a really good time to ask for help, isn't it? When you're at yeah. that point where it's preoccupying so much of your waking hours. Yeah. Um, so when you do determine that either somebody might be in that position or they are in that position, then I guess it's the time to kind of press the help button, which isn't something we necessarily as individuals are capable of doing. So what 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 would the range of things be that you could appropriately do to help someone? Yeah, I think the yeah, the first thing you can do is someone does if you have asked a question, someone does you know, open up and tell you, or someone just comes and tells you, the first thing you can do to help them is just it's it's the response, so responding well. So we we've we're telling everybody to talk all the time, all the time, but we we don't really know how to listen as well or respond to these things. And I think people get very uncomfortable. So actually, yeah, by, by thanking them for telling you, thanking them for sharing with me, I feel really honored that you want to, you want to talk to me about this, whatever it may be. Um, and then, you know, remembering to give them the platform. We just spoke about it briefly then platform for them to talk about relating back to you or mm-hmm. saying, I know how you feel, or I understand, or, and actually giving them a, a, a time to get out of their head yeah, the, the problems that go on the head and out of their mouth. And a lot of the time people do self-solve problems when they when they get when they're given that space to be able to mm-hmm. just talk and make the conversation about them all the time. Keep on asking them questions. Tell me more about that. Why did you feel why do you feel that way? Why do you think you feel that way? What do you think you could do to yeah, solve that problem? And actually but I think most of us know the answers, what we need to do to solve our own problems. But when it's all in our head jumbled up and three o'clock in the morning when you're laying there it's not so the first thing you can do to really help them is just listen don't fix or solve give them the opportunity to fix and solve themselves um, and then oh, i think you should always be in your back pocket you should always have a few resources that are available for people um whether that is look make a plan with them not for them first so do you think we should call your mum, dad, brother, sister, friend, whoever, and get them to come because I don't feel safe letting you go by yourself if they are you know, suicidal. So keeping that person safe for now, as they call it. Um, and then 
think about different resources that are available. There's two really great resources that are directories that I absolutely love called hubofhope.co.uk. And that is a directory which you put your postcode in and it comes up in geographical order of all the resources um, available to you within mental health services in the UK. And then also um, mypickle.org, which is the same thing, but for situational problems. So it could be financing, it could be uh, for parenting, it could be all sorts of things. And that one, that second one's called mypickle.org we'll put um, links to all of these in the show notes um, and and many other resources as well for anyone who's listening to this and and, and needs help in whatever aspect so recognise ask listen help and it's funny actually after listening I was listening to a a podcast that you were on not because I stalk you but because I do research my (laughs) lovely guests and um, it was the last thing I was listening to before while I was cleaning my teeth and stuff and then I remembered a friend of mine had called me that morning very out of the blue Mm. and then in quite a hurried way and was quite upset and and I, I didn't feel completely easy about it. And we'd arranged to see each other, but not for a few days. And then actually on the back of your of hearing yours, I did just message her before I went to bed and said, the last thing I wanted to say before I go to sleep is thank you so much for picking me to be the one you called today. And I felt so relieved. And then she got in touch first thing. And I so actually, I don't think she was at that point. But I was like, thank God. I just didn't occur to me that that's all I needed to say was one little thank you for telling me uh, rather than I'm going to solve it. And yeah. and telling people I, I am here to listen. I, I'm pleased you've chosen me to talk to. I'm here. And yeah. I think that's that people don't get quality listening in life very often, do they? It's, it's, that's, that's one of the rare things you do get and, and one of the lovely things about what you do for a living. But who supports you then, Tom? Because you've got this, you've, this thing kind of left the stable. You had no idea like, you know, seven years ago that you'd be doing all this now. So who's supporting you with all this stuff that people require from you in terms of support? Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's... Um... It's really important to have your own support group. All those things are available for you as well. The things that you find with Hub of Hope and My Pickles Samaritans and all that sort of stuff. So they are available for me. So if I want to you know, reach out to them, but also things like Dr. Peter Aitken, you know, I've got him if I need him. I've got the trustees. I've got Cara here in the office. I've got my wife, I've got my family. I've got, and I think it's about being aware that you can go and talk to those people if you, if you need to. Um, and and just knowing, I think just knowing you've got a support group around you and know who they are makes a massive difference to your well-being. Anyway, even if you don't use it, you know you've got those people. And I think I encourage everybody to um, ensure that they know there's people around you you can talk to, but also let other people know that you're a safe space, as you just said. Um, and there's the five steps to mental well-being which i think is really really important it's almost a bit like you know our physical health we know how to keep ourselves physically fit don't we it's you you eat well and you exercise and you whether we do it or not we know what the keys are when it comes to mental health i don't think it's so commonly known and i think if you can look at those you can see them anyway if you google five steps to mental well-being or whatever search engine you choose yeah but you know it's about looking through them you know and connecting with others is one thing so how do you like to connect with others i mean you know social meet and greets might be great for one but they're not for the other you know someone might prefer more intimate meeting over a coffee or at their house so i think look at those five steps of mental well-being and try and write down two or three things that you like out of those things and create your own prescribe for yourself you know um you talked about going for someone tells you to go for a run being physically active is the second one and if someone told me to go for a run that would damage my mental health because i would be 
I hate guilty running, that so you don't. I, I wouldn't look do it. I wouldn't look. I wouldn't look forward to doing it. I probably wouldn't do it, and I'd feel guilty for not doing it. Exactly. So, you know. No, it's picking, and also knowing that what knowing what is the challenge on the day, because um, it's mm. that combination. I remember a friend of mine who had a, a spell, um, you know, in a psychiatric hospital as a kind of um, resident there for a bit, and they said to her, you know, the idea of nestle, don't wrestle. So there is that aspect when you're feeling really bad of, don't fight it, but then there's also the aspect of doing enough to keep yourself hopefully starting to get better again at some point and get yeah. to stay well it's the combination of judging yourself and but, but on a certain day walking to the end of the road might be a massive challenge or daring to go and order a coffee and have a conversation with a barista that might be a big day sometimes yeah. so I guess it's, it's working within your limits isn't it and not judging yourself if those limits are very um, constrained before I ask you the three questions I ask everyone Tom I just want to talk about um, well first of all you've got a book coming out um, your yeah. third book coming out is that right? Fourth. Fourth book. My goodness. Yeah. You've snuck another one in since I did the research. But you're well, late. I've, I've, <laughs> I was going to say, I've written more than I've read now. <laughs> That's not the first time you've said that line. Hey. <laughs> you've written more than I've written. I haven't even written one. Uh, but your next, your your fourth book is How to Listen So Men Will Talk. And that's out right. on the 14th of April. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And your, this episode's going out on the 11th of April, so we'll make Perfect. sure that we, yeah, that we do lots around your book. And people can also um, donate to the charity, to the Lions Baber, Lions Baber. Uh, the, <laughs> I'm so good at this job, the, the Lions Baber Collective. Uh, so that's all good. And they can also find um, barbers who are trained, Lions Barber trained people. Yes, so you can go on the um, Lions Barber Collective website and you go to Locate a Lion on there it comes up with all the people that have taken any form of our training basically i think you also need to just highlight which one's a single and it'll be the best dating app ever but um <laughs> that's just my idea for a spin-off in 2023 and I'm sure we can do that <laughs> brilliant and i just wanted to ask about the collective pride awards so this is an awards that you're setting up is this to recognize so outside of the skills and the technical side of the industry it's to recognize some other stuff that's correct that's correct yeah basically we get we celebrate the creative side of our industry all the time and that's amazing and there's great people that win and great great examples of our of our skill set but actually i want to try and celebrate those in the hair and beauty industry that go above for their their clients their colleagues their communities and really do make a difference as unsung heroes um and try and recognize the industry for the other sets of skills they have you know rather than just the technical skills and uh the first one is on april the 4th the first awards evening and um hopefully I've just I've just got off. The reason why I was two minutes late is because I just got off a call to the committee about that about the award. So yeah, it's uh, it's coming up. It's really exciting, and I just think they said on the call, it's the right Royal Albert Hall. Here we come in the next five years. So it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and really celebrate the powerful impact that the hair beauty industry has. Namaste, motherfuckers. So what would you pick, Tom? You've had a few. What would you pick as your Namaste, motherfucking life changing moment? Um. God, there is a few. I think when it comes to, uh, oh, there's so many. I think the, I think I'm going to choose the, the, just the TED talk. I think because doing that was, um, I had an email to do that. Um, I literally sat with my wife on. I just closed my MacBook and just shut everything down. She said, "What's going on?" So I've had an email for TED talk uh, to do a TED talk, and I was terrified it took me it was about nine months before i didn't sleep well for nine months i had to memorize wow. the script i had to i really really struggled doing it because i was at that point i'd cut hair on stage in front of thousands of people all around the world but i'm cutting hair i'm talking about what i'm doing i've never i'd never just got up on stage and spoke 
by myself with a script that I had to remember in front of a thousand people. And just before I went on stage as well, my uh, the, the, the guy told me backstage, oh, there's 35,000 people watching on the live stream, which really did not help at all. But um, yeah, I, I couldn't get it. And I would never have got it without my wife, but it has enabled me to do, to grow. It's, it's stepping outside of your comfort zone, isn't it? And anytime I've done that, there's a few moments in my life I've done that, but that enables you to level up, I feel. So and anyone really who's moment. terrified of public speaking, um, they should watch your TED Talk because it's a masterclass in what you were feeling versus what you were portraying because nobody watching that would have known that I was thinking how, you know, when I've trained people in public speaking, you did a load of the things that I tell people to do. You just seem to do it naturally. So there you go. All that nine months of uh, <laughs> not sleeping, it all paid off. You made it look effortless, even though I'm sure it was very effortful. Um, so we'll share a link to your TED Talk. And what's your favourite joke, Tom? Well, do you know what? One of the things I, the things I follow on on, uh, on Instagram, probably one of the only things I follow on Instagram, is dad jokes. Um, so there's like, I just really like bad, bad jokes. So things, there's one I was going to say about books because I write my next book. So my next book is actually uh, going to be about the things I, I should have done with my life. It's going to be called the autobiography. <laughs> and now you're a dad <laughs> yes i can use them you That's have my favorite to use thing. them yeah you have to and even the ones we don't think are dad jokes are so um i hope you don't dad dance as well as like dad jokes <laughs> <laughs> well i don't know about that we don't have time to dance anymore <laughs> <laughs> well that's not what we want to hear from someone who's espousing mental well-being i don't have time was, to dance my, my dance my dancing was more uh mosh pits and circle pits and things like that so but it still helped your well-being tom yeah, that's the yeah, thing it, we don't all have to be drifting broken bones but my well-being was all right <laughs> we don't all need to wear a caftan to be mentally well um and if there was one bit of life advice you would give to anybody listening what would it be i i would say well i repeat what i said earlier on if you're struggling ask somebody for help never suffer alone and if you if you're if you feel comfortable doing it let other people know that you're a safe space for people to talk to you because it is incredibly um, amazing thing that people would feel comfortable to share with you and it's so powerful and uh, you can make a huge difference and can even save lives so I would say those two things That was Tom Chapman Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I'm going to do. And this week, it's all about the five ways to well-being that Tom and I talked about. We put a link to the mind version of these in the show notes, but you can find them in loads of other places online, including the NHS website. And these five things are connect, be active, take notice, which I think is about being more mindful and in the present, learn, which is about doing new things, and give, which I think is about being part of a social network and a community. Um, I'm okay at some of those things. I have to admit, I could do with focusing a bit more on some of the others. I guess, couldn't we all? So here goes. And a reminder that we have included links to the Lions Barber Collective and many other resources in the show notes for this episode. So please, if you've been affected by anything in it, or if you've heard things you think might help someone, spread the word. And that is pretty much it for this week. Thank you so much as ever for listening. Thank you also 
from the bottom of my heart for supporting the podcast in its first year out in the world. And remember, as of next week, there will be a new Namaste motherfucking episode out every Thursday, not Mondays, every Thursday. And to kick us off with our new drop date, who better than comedian, genius and fellow ginger, Angela Barnes. All I mean by being ugly is that, you know, we're constantly bombarded with images of what women should look like. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.